Welcome to the Mimi B Podcast. I'm your host, Mimi Bouchard, and this podcast is designed to help you become the best version of yourself possible. This podcast will motivate you and give you the tools that you need to get to where you want to be. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Mimi B Podcast. Today, we have our special guest on, Lisa Haim. That's how we pronounce it, Haim. She's a registered dietitian and the founder of The Well Necessities. And I'm super excited to have her on today. So welcome, Lisa. Thank you. So excited, Mimi. You're such a bright light. Thank you so much. That's so sweet. I I've only been following you for a short time, but I really, really love your content. You're so real and authentic, and I think the world just needs more of that. And I'm really excited to have you on today to talk about all things keeping your mental health right, positivity, you know, how to deal with our inner critic, uh, body image and self-image, mental health, and some of your top health hacks. Because you're not a typical dietitian. You are a woke dietitian. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, 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 my goal is to help people really learn, learn to listen, honor, and trust their own bodies rather than, you know, me come in as the expert and tell them what to do. Um, and that all comes from personal experience of having to figure it out myself, of course. <laughs> mm-hmm, absolutely. So should we just get into that? Like your story, how you kind of evolved over the years into the woman that you are today and and maybe just kind of an overview of some of the experiences that you've had so far in life that have created you? Yeah, for sure. So um, my pursuit of nutrition, uh, learning to learning about nutrition kind of was under the guise of disordered eating for a long time. So originally I sought out to learn about nutrition. And as I sought out, this was, you know, 10 so years ago, as I went to go find information about the benefits of food, everything that I could get my hands on easily um, kind of muddied the waters of what food was about. So for example, let's say I was like, oh, blueberries must be really nutritious. Let's learn about blueberries. And so I'd Google or before Google, whatever, you know, learn, open a magazine to learn about blueberries. And I learned that blueberries are low in calories, that they're great for, you know, if you don't want to bloat, you should have blueberries. And over a very short period of time, weight and health became kind of blurred together in my mind. And I didn't realize that you could pursue health without putting this extreme emphasis on weight and the, or body image, I should say. So what's interesting about me from, you know, maybe other people that tell their body stories is that I've always lived in a thin, privileged body. Um, And yet I still struggled, of course, with body image and things like that. But I kind of had this like impending fear of weight gain always circling my head. And I was afraid if I stepped out of the bounds of quote unquote healthy eating, that would mean my body would change. Um, That was kind of a long sentence, but basically in the pursuit of health, I got kind of looped into disordered eating and all these food rules um, about what I could eat, when I could eat, how much I could eat. And eventually I was just so afraid to step out of bounds that I became so limited by, by what I was doing. Yeah. Yeah. 
So um, it started for me um, in college when I was kind of drawn to veganism for the what I called the health benefits. I felt amazing. My digestion was great. I mean, my, my everything just felt really good in my body. And I thank goodness I didn't become a dietitian, you know, overnight. Thank goodness it's a process of schooling and learning about a lot of different things because at that point in my life, I would have pushed what I was doing on everybody that I knew. But but really what veganism was for me, and I like to just kind of upfront say this, you can be a vegan or be paleo or whatever you are and not have a disordered relationship to food. But for me, veganism was hiding my disordered relationship to food um, under the guise of health and control. So for me, prior to veganism, I was always really overwhelmed by what to eat for every meal. Okay, should I have skim milk or full fat milk? You know, should I have eggs or no eggs? Like what, what, there were so many conflicting health claims that I now call noise that, okay, I'll just be vegan. And then 98% of my problems were taken off the plate for me, kind of um, a pun there, you know, all the problems were gone because I didn't have to think anymore. Oh, okay, that cake has eggs in it. I can't have it instead of, oh, I want that cake, but I shouldn't have the cake because the cake's going to make me gain weight, blah, blah, blah. So it allowed me uh, in essence to become mindless and go on autopilot because the choices about what it meant to be healthy were so drowning to me. So I realized that I had developed food fears, um, meaning certain foods, if I consume them even by accident, would con would cause major panic to me uh, to the point that, you know, I would do something to compensate for eating them. So it got a little bit intense. And but yet at the same time, um, I never recognized that I had a problem because Mimi, you're 24, you said. And like, you've heard the word disordered eating before, right? I've had it for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Had it. You've had it, right. Yeah. So when I was going through the throes of this, the word disordered eating didn't exist or it really wasn't known to the public. There was no Instagram, you know, there was no community support like there is now. And even health professionals and therapists didn't know what disordered eating was. They knew what eating disorders were like anorexia and bulimia. I knew what those were. And I knew that I didn't have those because I never restricted my calories or in that period of time, I wasn't restricting my calories. I never made myself throw up. So in the absence of not having uh, in the absence of not having an eating disorder, I thought I was like fine. And the one thing that kind of stood out in my mind of like, okay, this actually doesn't feel right was I could not stop thinking about food. Like I'd be eating breakfast and still thinking about lunch. While I was having lunch, I was thinking about dinner. If I went out to, if I went out to dinner, which already would cause so much panic for me, I'd scan the menu, pre-select what I was having, you know, substitute this with this and this and this and this. Like I was so rigid and obsessed with food. Um, so that was like my hallmark sign looking back that I kind of wish I honed in on a little bit more. Um, but I went to a therapist and said, I don't know what's wrong with me. I love healthy eating. I love the foods that I eat, but I can't stop thinking about food. And she said, you have anxiety. And I said, okay, that feels right. And while she was right, I was, I did have anxiety about many things in life. She really missed the mark on saying something's up with your relationship to food. Um, and if it was caught then, things probably would have been a lot different. <laughs> so those are kind of like the early days. 
Wow. Well, you know, I feel like so many women can resonate to your story because I love that distinction there between eating disorders and disordered eating. You know, they're 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 different because anorexia, bulimia, like that that's what I grew up thinking was an eating disorder, you know. And then I have my own journey and story that I, I definitely am open about on here. And um, you know, just being obsessed with food is an it's it's a form of an eating disorder too. And you know, it, it took me a really long time to figure that out. And what I've noticed over the past year and a half since I've really really, I think, healed my relationship with myself and food, I realized that, you know, the less I obsess, the happier I am, even with like with how I feel and how I look. Like, I hate to say it that way too, but the less I obsess over food, the more my body just organically, naturally is, you know, is at the body that I I, I desire to be. And um, it, it is very hard for a lot of women because, body image issues, especially in today's world with the media and this and that, like it's, it's really tough. What kind of advice do you wish that you could tell every young girl feeling really insecure and not worthy? Um, what kind of advice would you tell them right now? I think that like the keyword you said there is like obsess and control. Um, and the second we feel like, okay, unworthy or our bodies aren't right. We cling to what the noise, as I call it, the media, and there's so much more now than there was even when I was young, but there's always noise. We cling to what we should do to fix the problem. And those are always external things, whether that's working out more or eating less or eating prescriptively a certain way to do it. But what I would tell myself and young girls and is that you have internal guides that and voices and mechanisms in your amazing body that can direct you not only about what to eat, but they can tell you when to eat and how much to eat. And it simplifies everything when you gain your power back and learn, oh, hey, I'm hungry, I should eat. Not, oh, I'm hungry, but I intermittent fast, so I shouldn't eat for four more hours. And like to anybody who's listening here and they do any of these things that we'll talk about, I'm sure, you know, veganism, intermittent fasting, if they work for you, fantastic, you know? And and I think that a lot of times people listen to this message and they get really defensive about their diet because it works for them. And now I'm talking about it in the context of disordered eating. If you feel like this doesn't apply to you, then it doesn't apply to you. But for many people, what starts off as this works for me ends up becoming a rigid way to live that not that steals your happiness, steals your life and steals your ability to listen to those internal cues. So we have a thing in our, um, we have a mechanism, a sense, I should say, called introception. And have you ever heard of that? No, tell me about it. Yeah. So different than introspection or inception or anything that sounds familiar, interoception is a part of the brain. Well, it's sense that stems from a part of the brain that helps you understand the feedback from your body. So when you, you're in the Bahamas now, so when, when you are, um, hot, right? Like you'll take off a layer of clothes, right? That's your interoception working really naturally. But when you're hungry, do you respond to that feeling the same way you would, you know, put, take on or off a jacket? And that's, that's the question. Yeah. Now you do maybe. Yeah. Now I do. (laughs) But for so many people, when we get signals about food and energy needs, we try to Um, suppress them or hack them is kind of a big one in the nutrition world when it's really simple. If the body's sending a message that says, hey, I need food, why would we do anything else other than not listen to it? 
Yeah. Um, and that's, again, going back to your original question, I wish someone told me, hey, you can trust those inner cues. You can listen to what your body's asking for, asking for just because it leads you to, you know, ice cream this one time doesn't mean that you're addicted to sugar or you need to go on a sugar detox or whatever. Like allow yourself to be present with what the body wants and try not to cling on to all the things you've been told about good foods and bad foods and all of that. Okay. So what about, what if someone listening right now says, okay, then I'll just eat junk for the rest of my life if I'm, is that what intuitive eating is? I know you're going to probably say a different answer, but what if someone doesn't want healthy foods and if they just allowed themselves to have anything and everything, it would be unhealthy foods? So I practice out of what's called the um, anti-diet, sorry, the um, anti-diet, yeah, anti-diet paradigm, which means, which is different than what a lot of people think. So when I talk about being anti-diet, that doesn't mean that I'm anti-health. That being said, Part of diet culture dismantling is recognizing that not everybody needs to be in the pursuit of healthy living. If that is your MO, great. If it's not, okay. We don't need to, we, we can't judge people for what they do. So if you're coming to me and you're somebody that says, I value my health, I want to eat healthfully, but I'm afraid to listen to my body because that would lead me to chips, cake, blah, 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 blah. We have to recognize, first of all, that healthy behaviors don't just revolve around food. So healthy behaviors and part of my practice is to expand what healthy living means. My job as a nutritionist is not to tell you what not to eat. It's try, it's to diversify your diet to help. What can you add in abundance to nourish your body? So that would be my role. But that being said, the big fear is if I start to eat, you know, whatever I want, I'll never eat a vegetable again. And that is something that has been like, so pushed down our throats to believe that the body, if left to its own devices, is unruly and disobedient. And that's why we need food rules to, you know, make sure that we eat well and eat healthy. But that is a huge freaking lie, in my opinion. And the day I realized this is the day that everything shifted for me. So after that shift with ve- after that stint with veganism, for the next five, six years or so, I had different my my disordered eating kind of looked different. It was always kind of a new form of food rules that, you know, I was disguised under. So there was clean eating and, you know, I, I doubt your audience even like was a part of this whole movement. But anyway, there were all these different times where I just thought I had to have rules. And every single Monday I was starting over because, you know, I was living a very fun life in New York City and I was social. And so the weekends looked drastically different than my weekdays. You know, I finally would let myself have French fries on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So I would have all the French fries on Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. And then Monday I have to be good. Like that was kind of like the the repeat situation that I had going on. And then one day I was like, you know what? I'm going to have a weekend where I just go into it and I enjoy myself. I have what I want and I really shift my part, my mind. And I woke up on a Monday and I was probably prepared to have the rules in place of what I need to do. But like a new light went on inside of my body that said, I want something green and crunchy and veg- veggie-licious, whatever. <laughs> and I was like, that's weird. Like 
my body is asking me for a salad right now, you know, and I always loved vegetables, don't get me wrong. But I believed that I had to make that choice in order for my body to want that. And once I heard from my body that it actually was directing me towards healthful food, um, food that has a lot of nutrition, nutritious benefits, I realized that the body is really wise. Like, of course, after a weekend of, you know, let's, let's call it a free for all. It's actually going to want hydration. It's going to want vitamins and minerals. Like your body, I realized that my body has my back and I need to listen to it, trust it, whether it's saying salad or cupcakes, French fries, whatever, and be open to the, to the amazing situation, the amazing mindset shift that the body would not lead me towards foods that make me feel sick all day long. That's, you know, diet culture that told me that's what my body would do. But if left to its own devices, the body has amazing guides. Like I said, that interoception to guide you towards the foods that nourish you and make you feel good. Yeah, of course they do. Right. Like we, we like to feel good. And I think, you know, I, I've, I've gone through my ups and downs with everything and, and, you know, been through phases of like when I was in university partying a lot, treating my body like crap and it just doesn't feel good. And then I've been through phases of, you know, eating super, you know, whole beautiful foods and in abundance and feeling like that just, it's not even comparable. You know, you don't even realize how good you can feel, um, until you feel that way. And, uh, yeah, you know, it, trusting your body is something that I've really had to learn. And it's a game changer because you just stop obsessing. And I think that trust is the base of, of, of ridding yourself of that obsession because we just don't trust ourselves so much. So we feel like it has to be at the forefront of our brain all the time, this obsession around food, but it's like, chill out. You know, I would love to be one of those people that's effortlessly, you know, in the most radiant, happiest soul, you know, right? So I feel like I could have had that. And then that's what I told myself. And that was like the beginning of my journey. So what? T- tell me about your kind of transition after the vegan stint, as you call it. Like, was it, did, was it like an overnight realization or how long did it take for you to go from like A to B? Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, and we're constantly, I'm constantly lo- learning learning, growing, evolving. And I am committed to recognizing that like, there is no A to B, there is no B, like, I'm just going to constantly be better every single day. But (laughs) the disordered eating in um, hindsight was probably six years or so. And, you know, for me, I had really no weight changes or physical, you know, symptoms that people would notice. So if anything, I was just getting a lot of claps, a lot of applause from people around me for being quote unquote disciplined. You know, I had a stint where I literally went to the gym every single day for six months and it became um, obsessive and compulsive. And it was even if it it was 20 minutes a day, whatever it was, I couldn't break that streak. And I had people, you know, wow, you're so this, you're so that, blah, blah, blah. And that just fed into it for me. And that is probably why it went on so for so long. You know, the words disordered eating were not known. Uh, my body did not change. And everything I was doing looked very healthy to the lay person. The only part that wasn't healthy was my mindset. And that's really kind of the key distinguishing thing with disordered eating. I call it disordered living. 
giving sometimes. And I'll get a lot of DMs sometimes for people from people asking me, is blah, blah, blah disordered? Like if I'm doing this behavior and out of isolation, you can't really tell because it's all happening in the mind. A lot of it is happening in the mind. I shouldn't say all there. The behaviors can certainly be there, but the preoccupation with food, the mental preoccupation with thinking about food, the planning while you're eating it, you know, eating a certain amount because you're afraid to eat more, the guilt after eating. I mean, all of that are really what the disordered eating is about. And most importantly, you lose your life. Like you keep saying, you know, the obs- you cannot obsess over something, anything, whether it's food, a relationship that, you know, went awry, a job that you didn't get, whatever it is in life, you cannot obsess and also live at the same time because obsessing is, is, is you know, occupying all of your brain space. So at some point, I think the best thing you can do is really ask yourself, am I living? And I'll take that a further what I do with all of my students and clients, which is, are you living out your values? And so value clarification is a very simple check-in that I do with my, um, I don't, you might do it. I know you do a lot of self-development work, but it's a very simple check-in that I do a few times a year where I list out my top three values. And then I list out what values I'm prioritizing. And I will do this exercise with clients and students as well. And oftentimes what happens to my students and clients who come to me for disordered eating is they're prioritizing, you know, gym, their body, blah, 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 you know, food controls, whatever, but their values might be spending time with family or on just my personal ones, like giving back to the world, you know, certain things like that. And so when we shift out of like what obsess what we're obsessing over and kind of swallowed us whole back into our values we kind of have an action plan like when we kind of dive back into giving our brain space to whatever it is we're obsessing we can be like wait a minute what can i do to live out this value and so the a classic example i always give is like um spending, you know, going to dinner with your family. Let's say you you value family time, but you're no longer going out to dinner with your family or spending a holiday meal with them because they don't eat the same as you. Like you've never prioritized your obsession, not your value. Um, And so it's a very simple-ish tool to check in with yourself and always live like an aligned life because that's what it's kind of about and take your power back without focusing so much on the food even itself. You're focusing on the true you that got squashed down by the food rules. Love that. So align your actions with your values. That is really powerful. I really, really like that kind of actionable tip, you know, for everyone listening, write down your values and write down what you're spending the most time on every day. And if those don't match up, you know, there's something to, to look at there. And I think that's with, you know, everything I'm thinking right now, what do I have, you know, room to improve on in this area? And I'm thinking, oh my God, technology, that is not a value of mine, but I spend so much time (laughs) on technology and it's so draining. And I'm really trying to create kind of boundaries around that. Do you have any tips on that? Like my question is, and I'd kind of shift that in the same way. Like what is it stealing from? What's it stealing from? Oh, you know, uh, time with myself, time to work on me, time to work on my business, time to spend time with my boyfriend, call family on FaceTime, you know, 
create and write. And I love to do things that aren't computer based. Um, So I think make it, you know, coming up with um, time slots of when those happen naturally allows your focus to be less on like a rule of like, you know, no technology at this time. Boundaries are certainly helpful. I need them myself. And I wish that I knew how to implement those at, you know, at 24 years old, but you know, (laughs) you're so many light years ahead of yourself in, in that way. But I think shifting into what you want to be versus like putting all that energy into like, don't look at the technology can be really helpful and apply, you know, listener, apply that to anything in your life. Yeah. That's really good too. You know, adding more instead of taking out that's a ri- all these actionable tips coming out here <laughs> 32 times around the sun 32 years old and you I guess I've learned a, th- a thing or two. <laughs> oh my gosh okay so let's talk about because uh, I love what you what you say you're very open on your socials about mental health your inner critic how to love yourself can we talk about that like how what's been the biggest factor in you starting to really love yourself and work on your mental health? Has it been the internal work, maybe therapy, writing? What's your trick? Um, Well, no, therapy, huge for me. But when it comes to like body image and food stuff, the the word self-love is very misunderstood in my opinion, because people think that it means you look in the mirror and you're like, yeah, you're hot, you're sexy, you're perfect. You know, that it's this like conceited thing. But self-love to me means honoring myself no matter what and allowing myself to show up no matter what. And so I think that the word really confuses somebody who's not there. And it's super important to recognize that there is no there. Nobody in the entire planet, not, you know, the most gorgeous models, they don't wake up every day and look in the mirror and be like, you're gorgeous, you're hot. You know, that is not self-love. Self-love is self-acceptance and allowing yourself to, I mean this metaphorically, but also literally take up space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd say the biggest shift of where my mindset shift accidentally happened, because again, you have to realize I didn't know that I was struggling when I was struggling, was yoga. And learning to show up to the mat every single day, no matter what my body looked like, seeing it in the reflection every single day and continuing with the practice of showing up, looking down at my body and not judging it, not, not, you know, tearing it apart, but rather seeing it in the appreciating it for, you know, even just having two legs, finding gratitude in those seemingly small things, noticing my heartbeat after, you know, a gentle flow. All those things where my mind and body, I always kind of, I like to think of it as like somewhere along the way, my mind and body like divorced themselves. And that's what happened from during my disordered eating. Like my mind went over here and my body went over here and they just like stopped communicating with each other. And then yoga, I think was one of the most powerful things for me that brought them back together. And my body was like, hey, mind, want to get back together? And my mind was like, um, well, I guess I won't be so hard on you for not looking so perfect. And they started to kind of like communicate again. And the trusting mind-body connection was reformed. That being said, um, the mind-body connection, like all things in life, are going to ebb and flow. So I have my days where I'm just totally off. And I have my days where I'm back on. And the key to... 
flowing and not, you know, getting so stuck up on what you need to do externally to change that is to recognize that like everything's impermanent. Our relationships to ourselves are impermanent. They flow, they come back in and trust that they will return. Um, And I truly believe that that's what like showing up for yourself and nourishing. And when I say nourishing, I don't necessarily mean with just food. I mean like giving your body the nourishment it needs, whether that be rest or movement or, you know, a chickpea or a cupcake, like whatever that nourishing thing is for you in that moment, honoring that. Yeah. I love that. I love that vision of coming back to you, getting back into that relationship with your mind and body. And I see just visualizing that really just makes sense to me because I can relate, right? Like when you're a kid, you're so, your mind and body are totally working together. You're like, oh, I'm going to have a bite of this. And, you know, if you're feeling stuffed and it doesn't feel good, you don't finish the plate. But if you want more, you're like, mommy, can I have more? Like, you know, you're very intuitive as a kid and we lose that. And, and coming back to that and getting back together (laughs) is a really cool kind of visualization. I really, really like that. Um, And so other than therapy, do you do, and I know you do a lot of personal development, do you have some sort of like morning routine? Do you journal? Like, do you have any kind of routines that help you stay on track mentally? Um, pretty much no, (laughs) but no, I try, I try, I try and I'm still learning at 32, but going to therapy for one second, just to harp on that therapy was incredible for me. And I've been in therapy my entire life, but there was one therapist who I started seeing three to four years ago, who totally changed my life. And um, I do just want to mention it. I'd already kind of had my food stuff under control, but my my therapist in New York City, her name is Natasha. And prior to Natasha, I saw my therapist only when shit hit the fan. Can I curse there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not like a huge cursor, but like sometimes there's just like a time for it. And so previously, you know, therapists are really expensive. And so I just kind of would go and shit hit the fan, like when I would hit have my breakdown. And that was kind of my relationship to therapy my entire life. And I started seeing Natasha, who does a um, therapy called AEDP. I'm forgetting right now what it stands for. But after my first session, I was like, um, when should I come back? And she's like, well, I really see my clients every single week. And I was like, well, I don't think I'm going to have anything, something to say every single week. And I committed to her process. And I realized that on days when I had nothing to say is when my greatest self-exploration findings happened because it was quiet and safe enough for me to explore the less obvious things that I struggle with, if that makes sense. Yeah. And what she really kind of taught me when it comes to like that mind body connection is that my body picks up information sometimes faster than my mind. And so I would be talking about something and I don't know if this video is going to be aired, but like my leg, let's say it would go like this and I wouldn't even notice my leg was going like that, but I'd see her look at my leg and it was like the clue that like talking about whatever it was is really hard for me. And it was before my mind even realized it, but by tapping into the ways my body 
literally like communicates with me, whether it's a visible, you know, leg jumping up and down or a tightness in my stomach or maybe like a very light pain up my neck. I now have like, like an early alert when something isn't right inside of me, which allows me to tap into self-care, if you will. Like, you know, I'm not talking manicures, pedicures, you know, all fine too, getting your hair done. That's not what I mean when I self-care. I mean like hunkering down with myself and and holding myself, like literally like free things, like hugging myself, putting my hands on myself and being like, okay, what's going on? You know, your heart rate's picking up. Why is this bothering you? And asking the questions before I'm at like my either breakdown point of hystericalness, which is like very Lisa, um, or oftentimes what more people are more familiar with it, which is like the reacting point where you're just like, you know, fuck you and you and you and you and you like whatever. So the body sends incredible hat. The body holds so much information and it gives us clues when we don't feel safe or when we feel scared and having that knowledge on me has been like one of the most life-changing things for me. Wow. That's so crazy. And so interesting. You know, something crazy. Like I'm a huge mind body connection believer and I really love, I don't know how much into like manifestation, law of attraction stuff you're into. I love like, you know, uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza's work. I don't know if you've heard of him. Oh yes. Yes. I have one of his books. Yeah. Obsessed. So he talks about how, you know, the body is basically the unconscious mind. And, um, I've noticed it firsthand, like I'll say something so super random that I've said on my Instagram many times. I used to have keratosis pilaris all over my arms, those bumps everywhere. You know, those like chicken. Mm-hmm. Yep. I know there. I had them once. Yeah. And when I started doing intense meditations and like really just changing my identity to be who I want to be in like the authentic Mimi uh, about six, seven months ago, I intensely visualized them going away and I was curing like my deep rooted insecurities because I think these were based around insecurities because they're like the outside of me and I always was so insecure. And um, when I started working on that, they started going away the first time and I, I think I developed them when I was eight years old and they went away when I was 23 and they, they've come back a little bit since. And then I noticed that's when my mentality is off. And then when my mentality is back on, they go away again. It's the craziest thing. And it's the one thing that's actually gotten my boyfriend who is super not woo woo. <laughs> he is like, nope. <laughs> and that's that he's been like, Oh, that's, that's really weird. You know? So to that extent as well, like I just find it fascinating yeah, your body has clues and information when things aren't right. And I also can notice because I study my own body, I can notice when other people shift their body language in a way that is a piece of information. So you haven't done anything in this session, but if I'm talking to somebody and I notice that they're nervous, like I might pick up on their very subtle body language clues. And then I kind of can better communicate or change what I'm going to say to, you know, kind of calm them down. So like, it's kind of cool because the more you study yourself, the more you naturally like read other people and these subtle cues are kind of there. So like, as it's kind of funny, but like, if I'm like fighting with my boyfriend, my boyfriend, oh my God, my husband, sorry. (laughs) Been married for almost a year. But if I'm fighting with my husband and I noticed like he's tensing up, it's to my advantage, actually, 
to take a moment rather than prove my point to maybe hug him or be, or do something to calm him down. Because when somebody else is reactive or kind of getting in their um, reactive level and state, like we're not going to have a real conversation. We're not going to see eye to eye if he's here and then I'm here and then he's here and then I'm here. Like we're going to keep missing each other. But if I could calm down whatever's kind of going on with him, we can go back to the root problem. Um, and I know that that kind of is a far place of where we started this conversation, but it's an incredible tool to recognize when you're activated or when other people are activated and instead of react to it, like scale back a minute, like change what you were about to do, say like get quiet, get still, get gentle. I would almost say, I would almost say, um, and, and it's amazing how that works to your advantage because there's so much wasted energy in life. And when you start to notice when, where you're wasting it and where you can conserve it, yeah, you just shine much brighter. Mm-hmm. And I like where this conversation's going. Let's talk a bit about relationships. You're in a happy relationship and you're very honest again with your following about, you know, you and your husband, yeah. <laughs> new husband, boyfriend, husband, yeah. side fling. Side fling. <laughs> um, so what are your top relationship tips for everyone listening? You know, like how do you keep such a happy, healthy relationship? How do you, you know, you just gave insight in, you know, what you would do potentially in a fight if you guys mm-hmm. aren't seeing eye to eye, but what other kind of tips and tricks um, and philosophies you have around that? Yeah. So um, my husband is an interventional cardiologist, which means he works a lot and um, work comes first. And most people don't really get to say that or do that. But when you're like literally, you know, saving lives, he wouldn't say that, but that's what I would say. You know, he would never say work comes before you, but I knew marrying him. I've been with him for six years where our relationship is in response in, in relationship in position to his responsibilities. Um, so I'd say the number one thing that we do is we make time to connect. Um, and I'm like so hesitant to say this, but I've said it so many times in my life, but for, I've been with him for six years. And for the most part, I'd say 98% of the time I wait for him to eat dinner, which can be a crazy shift from seven to 11 o'clock at night. And it's only, our dinners are only probably 15 minutes, but you know, we put our cell phones to the side and it's our time to connect and be interested in each other's days. Like we both it would be very easy for us to live parallel lives where we just kind of truck on, you know, I have my career, he has his, and we don't merge anywhere, but that's kind of our merge point. So I don't think that anybody's, you know, it doesn't have to be dinner for you or whatever, whoever's listening, but you need to have merge points and your non-negotiables with each other. And the reason I said I was like hesitant to put that out there is like, as I move into, you know, hopefully being a mom one day, like I, uh, I know that that will be, more challenging as I have, you know, I work for myself so I can wake up a little bit later sometimes if I have dinner with him, but we need to always maintain merge points. I think that's really important. Um, number two is do not let, do not sweep anything under the rug. Like, but that being said, not every moment is the right moment to talk about it. 
So the other day, my husband, we had friends over and he snapped at me because something was going on with him. And because nothing else is under that rug, like I was able to table it for the moment, not pile it on top of the things I'm still mad at him for, you know, that oftentimes happens. And then after everybody left, I'm like, what the fuck was that? You know, like, that's not our relationship. You don't do that. And he's so apologetic at that point because he's no longer activated. But I think it's so important to not sweep things under the rug, but also not address them sometimes in situations that, you know, if I tried to address that situation with him in front of friends, we would have both gotten so mad at each other. And in the urgency of trying to resolve it while our friends are there and not make a scene, you know? So I think that not sweeping things under the rug is important and having, you know, that's kind of a silly example, but having the hard conversations, um, even though they're scary and they are scary for couples because you don't know how those hard conversations will end. And a lot of people are afraid to disagree with their partner on big things, but I think disagreeing is important and it's how you maintain your identity in any relationship where two people are exactly the same, no person's going to grow. So I always tell my husband, don't let me outgrow you. You know, like you better do your own personal work too. Love that. It's so true. So, so true. You know, my theory with healthy relationships is that, you know, if both people are growing individually without the other in their own personal development, they can come together in a beautiful kind of unison, right? So that's kind of what I've noticed with my boyfriend and I too, you know, the best when we are in our best in our relationships, it's when we're both growing and evolving individually. And then we come together um, as well. And and that's super special. So what kind of, do you have any advice for some girls listening that feel like their boyfriends aren't moving forward? They don't know how to motivate them. They don't know, you know, how to push them when they're doing the own their own work. I've actually had a few DMs um, from some girls asking a similar question, you know, like I'm doing a lot of work on myself, they say, and I'm delving into personal development. And I feel like my boyfriend who I love, but I feel like I'm outgrowing a bit, you know, I, I feel like he's not doing any of the work and he's still doing the same old stuff. Like, what would you say to me? I don't even know what to answer that, you know? Yeah, like, you say? There, there is no blanket answer there because sometimes one person does outgrow the other. That being said, um, I think it's it's not your job to make somebody else grow and growth looks different per person. So just because they're not meditating with you or journaling or like doing the same, like my husband doesn't journal or do any of that stuff, but the way he shows me that he's growing or the way that I see, not shows me, he doesn't have to show me anything. The way I notice that he's growing is in our conversations where I notice that he's seeing things a little bit more differently than he did the day before. And he's more willing to do something. And I think it's more about these like micro moments rather than like my, I'm spiritual and my boyfriend's not spiritual and I don't, you know, whatever. But I mean, if somebody, I think you need to have your, your, your non-negotiables personally, not just as a relationship. And if that person isn't meeting those non-negotiables for you, then it's time to reevaluate. Um, and I think that fighting is like totally, I don't know if you agree. Fighting's really important. (laughs) Yeah, totally. 100%. And what, I mean, people go through the hoops to avoid fighting with their partners, but like, I remember I shared once, um, 
my husband has a, a conference that happens every year in May in Paris. And that's the only time I've been to Paris, like for his work. And it always looks super glamorous on Instagram. You know, I try and take pictures by the Eiffel Tower myself or whatever. And we're trying new foods and wines and whatever. And I remember I shared on my story that we just got into a huge fight in the middle of Paris on vacation, you know, vacation work, whatever. And the amount of DMs that I got that day was so interesting because we put all of our pressure on our relationship to not fight when we're on vacation. Or we might say things like, how could we fight on vacation? And we put all this like extra meaning on things that don't need meaning. Like we got into a fight in Paris. It could have been New York. Like it just happens. But we build like our expectations on what a trip to Paris should look like, what our even proposals should look like, whatever it is. And we're not living in that moment because we're so afraid of the meaning of it. Like just let a fight be, you know, <laughs> like just let a fight express itself. Don't let it carry on. You know, that was a really bad fight. We literally like spent half the day. I, were we, we were already engaged. That was it too. We were already engaged. And once you're engaged and you get into a fight you spiral into a new type of thinking where it's like, I can't marry this person. You know, it happened this one fight, but that's me compounding the fight on top of nothing. Yeah. Um, a fight can be a fight. We have yeah. fights when we're married. We had fights when we're engaged. We've had fights since the day that we met, you know, yeah. <laughs> but as long as we resolve the fight at some point, as we move forward, we don't sweep it under the rug. Fights are okay. I think they can be healthy. Mm-hmm. Great. I love this. So good. So, so good. Okay. So before we get wrapped up here, because this has been such an amazing episode that's gone by so quickly, um, I want to hear some of your kind of like, you know, health hacks. I know that you've just gotten infrared sauna. I know that you have certain healthy stuff that you do that makes you feel good, keeps your mental health in order. And, you know, you're kind of, uh, I don't know, what is it, self-care type of stuff. What are some, tell me about the infrared sauna and then tell me about some of the other stuff that you do to kind of keep your healthy habits in order. Yeah, so the sauna, I got, most people will probably say that they get a sauna for detoxification and caloric burn and things like that. But my sauna, number one, was mental health. Um, In the winter, I get the wintertime blues and we just moved back to New York. um, And I knew that this could be incredibly life-changing for me because heat, sweat, and warmth is really important. And the infrared has so many amazing benefits. So I have a clear light sauna. They're fantastic. They're the only way to go. And it helps so much with not just my mental health, but my physical body. If anybody listening has like aches and pains, the importance of like gently stretching your body in heat and opening up what's called the fascia. I could talk about the fascia in a whole other episode is critical for feeling good. Um, so I love, love, love my sauna. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, other things that I do, my season's kind of ending, but nature is the most, uh, therapeutic thing for me. If I can get outside for either a walk, um, or even plant my feet into the earth for a minute a day, things are drastically different. Um, And I'd say the number one thing, health hack, I know I haven't even gotten to like eating anything or anything, but the number one health hack I do is I have rules and boundaries around my cell phone and I take phone free breaks. Um, They're usually about a week 
at a time. I haven't done one in a while. I'm probably pretty due, but I I still use other technology. It's not a completely tech-free thing, but I stop being so reliant and addicted to my phone and make space for so much more. So that's, that's it. And then my newest, I'd say, kind of thing that I'm implementing, I've always been into mindfulness. It's rooted into all of my work, but meditating almost every single day for five minutes a day has been incredible for me to drop down into what's really underneath the surface, that subconscious stuff we talked about, or that Dr. Joe, I don't know how to say his last name. Dispenza, yeah. Dr. Joe Dispenza says, like, learn what the body's holding on to. Um, Those have kind of been my go-tos for now. Incredible. Okay, thank you so much for your time and wisdom today. Where can everyone find you if they want to hit you up on Instagram, see what you're all about? So Instagram is at the well necessities. Hopefully you can just put it in the show notes um, or the well necessities.com. And my online courses for learning to listen, honor, and trust your body can be found at forkthenoise.com. Love it. Love it. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you, Mimi.